0: Thank you. President Celeste, a distinguished faculty and staff, parents, relatives, friends, and most importantly, <clears throat> the 2008 graduating class of Colorado College. I'm going to speak for 13 minutes. <clears throat> like, like people who go to poetry readings, I think you deserve to know that this will be a finite experience. It's well known in the world of public speaking that there is no pleasure. You can give an audience that compares to the pleasure they get when it's over. So you can look forward to experiencing that pleasure 13 minutes from now. All the the pre-law students just looked at their watches. This is not the first commencement address I have ever given, but the task of dispensing advice to a group of young strangers, and worse, the job of reassuring them about the future does not get any easier with time or practice current events are no help as usual when it comes to dispensing optimism. The commencement address is also an open invitation to pretend to know more than you do, specifically how in the world you got to the point in life where you were seriously considered as a commencement speaker. (laughs) Ask any high school or college classmate of mine and they will tell you that I would be a serious contender for the most unlikely ever to be invited to give a commencement address prize. Hardly the one to address the issues of the day things like global warming, which I think should be called global roasting. Uh, Warming is just too comforting. There's the economy and the war, China, Zimbabwe, the Gaza Strip. Is there anyone who knows more about these things than I do? I wasn't even smart enough to bring sunglasses today. To give such an address is also to walk through a minefield of cliches, most of which I don't believe anyway. I am not, for example, a big fan of working hard to achieve something. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I much prefer the attitude of Max Bierbaum, who said, who said once that the ant sets an example for us all, but it is not a good one. He's the man who also must be credited with pointing out that the hardest thing about being a poet was figuring out what to do with the other 23 and a half hours of the day. (laughs) One consolation every commencement speaker can rely on is the universal truth that no one ever remembers their commencement address. It's like choosing the music for your wedding, you're much too excited to hear a note of it. I frankly have no recollection of who my commencement speaker was, yet I seem to have muddled through life okay without the benefit of his or her uh, timely advice. One reason such addresses are quickly forgotten is the focus of them tends to be the future. You've gone to college, managed to graduate, that's all well and good, the speaker will tell you, but now you must face the future. You should imagine some scary organ music in the background every time I say that word. Such speakers want, you to give the, want to give you the impression that you are teetering on the brink of a dizzying cliff at night in the rain. That dark area below you into which you are about to plummet is the future. Of course, many elect to simply avoid the future by going to graduate school. But let me assure you, that the future will never arrive and no one has experienced it. Remember when you were in high school? College was the future. Well now college is the past. What happened? It's a mystery. Even with a time machine, the future you may visit immediately becomes your present. In fact, I just remembered something my commencement speaker did say. He pointed he or she, rather, pointed out that the past was behind us and the future lay ahead which is something I had picked up in history. (laughs) So much attention to time, very odd, especially for people freshly graduated from college who justifiably feel they have all the time in the world. But maybe we should take another look at the subject. From my experience, there are two ways to regard time or maybe anything else, the pragmatic and the poetic. The pragmatic tend to think of the past as a body of tradition to be preserved and or a reservoir of errors and miscalculations that we can learn from and apply to the future. For the poetic, the past is simply a source of nostalgia and regret. Susan Sontag, a confirmed subscriber to the Poetic View, once wrote, just wait until now becomes then and you will see how happy we were. (laughs) As for the future, the pragmatist thinks of it not only as an opportunity to avoid repeating the blunders of the past but also a door that opens for opportunities for growth and improvement. Robert Louis Stevenson, representing a pessimistic view, once said about the future that everybody, sooner or later, will sit down to a banquet of consequences, to which I can only say, pass the butter. The poetic hold a simpler view. For them, the future is simply death and that is what that why death is the consuming subject of literature or should we say misery leading to death many of you know this intimately if you majored in english here at colorado college you majored in death (laughs) you saw it written on the blackboard many times take any anthology of literature and remove all the poems plays and stories that touch on the subject of human mortality And what remains will add up to a little more than a pamphlet of literature. And that leaves the present, that elusive moment where everything takes place but is moving too fast to be apprehended. I am amused by Philip Lopate's feeling that the present is not just vastly overrated, but actually irritating because it keeps interfering with two of his favorite anxieties, lamenting over the past and worrying about the future. (laughs) It takes a certain bravery to actually disparage the present. It is too fleeting even to contemplate. We can assess the present only after it has passed. Or so we may think. There is one way I know to access the present and poetry never tires of pointing this out. You do so by slowing down. Poetry on the page even helps you to do this by forcing you to decelerate as you are reading it. You simply cannot read stanzas with line breaks at the same clip that you can read the sports section of the Denver Post. To even approach the present, it's necessary to stop what you're doing, whether it's filling out a form or going grocery shopping, chores you decided to do in the past for the sake of the future. Such activities ask only that you go through the motions. Before I return to the essential point about your involvement in the present moment, let me share with you my top ten list of of things about the subject of time. Number ten, time is not money. Time is time. <clears throat> Number nine, time is more valuable than money. Number eight, magazines largely devoted to reporting the weight gains and losses of celebrities are a waste of time. <clears throat> Number seven, St. Augustine said that he understood perfectly the concept of time until he started thinking about it. Number six, in the in the past, time was measured not in months and hours, but in bird song, the brightness of moonlight, and the migration patterns of animals. Number five, in the words of James Brown, money won't change you, but time will take you out. Number four, when your time is over, you will be remembered for what you did, not for what you never got around to doing. No eulogist at your funeral will say, too bad she never signed up for that yoga class. Or, a pity he never followed up on those Italian lessons. So don't waste even more time worrying about things on your to-do list. Number three, when your time is done, you will not be remembered for what clothes you wore or what kind of car you drove. F. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a letter to his daughter just as she was beginning college. The letter is full of fatherly advice about such things as the importance of studying and the dangers of boys. Finally, at the end of the letter, he adds, quote, don't spend a lot of time on your hair. <laughs> number two, there really is no time like the present, but then there is no time like the past or the future, so what are you going to do? <laughs> and the number number one on my list of comments about time is, is the most striking definition of time that I have ever heard, which comes from the writer Martin Amos, who called time, quote, that mysterious inexorable force that eventually will make everyone look and feel like hell. (laughs) But to return to our theme, (laughs) it must be said that time with a capital T, which ensures our mortality with a capital M, is again the consuming subject of poetry, whose most repeated theme is that of carpe diem. You, as college graduates, know that carpe diem does not mean the fish of the day. Carpe diem urges us to seize our days, to carpe our diems, simply because we do not have an unlimited supply of diems given to us. The echoing song of carpe diem is meant as a check, a corrective to the presumptuousness of walking around on this earth taking our lives for granted. Sometimes we need an event to shock us into the present an event so disruptive that it does not allow us to continuing to continue wallowing in the past or putting off things to an indefinite mañana mañana by the way does not mean tomorrow it means not today in the wake of the terrorist attacks on september 11th Many people, especially in New York City, spoke of how the event prompted them to make adjustments in their personal lives, to speed things up. An engaged couple who had planned to marry the following year decided to marry the following week. Plans that had been put off jumped to the tops of people's list. Without knowing it, these people were simply following the advice that poetry has been delivering since the Roman poet Horace wrote the words carpe diem quam minimum credula postero, seize the day and trust little in the future in the first century before Christ. Some of us require a catastrophic experience to remind us that we are indeed alive. Some need major surgery to realize that life is precious. Some have to go through a windshield to see that today is all we are given. Others know this from reading poetry, a somewhat less traumatic experience. <laughs> And the corollary to Carpe Diem, a vein that runs deeply through the rock of poetry, is gratitude. Gratitude for simply being alive, for having a day to seize. The taking of breath, the beating of the heart, gratitude for the natural world around us, the massing clouds. In Barcelona, a poetry competition is held every year. There are three prizes. The third prize is a rose made of silver, the second prize is a rose made of gold, and the first prize is a rose, the flower itself. Think of that the next time the term priorities comes up. And speaking of a life infused with gratitude for the very gift of itself, a good place to start graduates not just feeling but expressing gratitude would be with your parents the ones who brought you into this world and helped you to this lucky place, guided you to this (coughs) fortunate milestone. Now by inviting a poet to deliver your commencement address, you should have known that you're not getting out of here without hearing a poem. And this is how I will close with a poem on the subject of filial gratitude. It's titled The Lanyard. The other day As I was ricocheting off the pale blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand, again and again, until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim, and I in turn presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied. (laughs) which I made with a little help from a counselor. (laughs) Here is a breathing body, a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. I want to leave you with one uh, final thought. <clears throat> Just a couple of uh, weeks ago, was the happened to be the birthday of Salvador Dali, and I read a quote from him on the writer's almanac Dali once said, Every morning I awake to a supreme pleasure, that of being Salvador Dali. <laughs> I want to wish each of you graduates, hoping that you will awake every morning to the supreme pleasure of being yourself. Thank you.